I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Nishamanik is a medical doctor born in Kenya, went to medical school at the University of Glasgow. She did fellowships in London and at Stanford University and worked for many years at the famous Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. She's recognized internationally as a leader in the field of integrative medicine. She's also a protege of the physicist Dr. William Tiller and a student of the theoretical and practical applications of Tellurian physics. Nisha also has a new book out, Bridging Science and Spirit, The Genius of William Tiller's Physics and the Promise of Information Medicine. Nisha Manik, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you for speaking with me today. How did you discover William Tiller and get involved with him? And what did you find so compelling about his work? You're a medical doctor, so that's quite a leap to this type of thinking and approach to the world. I'm so interested in the truth. I want to find the truth. I thought science is the way to the truth. It'll only get us part way. And so when I stumbled into Tiller's papers, I knew there's something here. Couldn't understand it, but I knew. And so when I met him in Scottsdale after much persistence, and he told me he knew Helen Shuckman, who was a scribe of A Course in Miracles. For me, that was so pivotal. I remember just being absolutely dumbstruck. And I just came away thinking, he knows Helen? If Tiller knows A Course in Miracles and he's a mathematician, he had both worlds in his hands, and he lived both worlds. So when I came away from the meeting, I realized, wow, he has a spiritual background. He's read A Course in Miracles, and he absolutely knows intention. He knows consciousness. He's asking the right questions. He's calling it subtle energy. And I went back to Mayo, and I immediately told my chairman, I got to go. <laughs> so for me as a physician, I knew he had the answer, or at least he was touching on something quite profound. So there you are. I had to connect those dots. Mm -hmm. I love that you're connecting those dots and making a solid bridge between the two. Yes. So Tiller is an excellent in terms of understanding the content of space whether it's a crystal and its growth and behavior or it's a material or like water, he knew the context. And I think this is where his genius lies. And then he even took the abstract notion of consciousness. It's invisible. Intention is invisible. And realized that this is information just by intention. You're creating new things, whether it's an equation or art or music, or it's creating things which then... You can look at it, you know, and so you can measure it. And so he made that great connection with thermodynamics, which are laws. And that's the other genius he did, that he captured something of the intention in a device in a stable way that you could now do experiments. 
And this is not a mystery, you know, we've known this science also. But he took that science and said, well, then, okay, then maybe I'll meditate with this device and see what happens. And Louis, he even told me, you know, it blew us away, this thing worked. <laughs> I, I laughed because it was so funny, you know, both of us in this room talking every Thursday, and he would tell me some of the doubts, some of the vagueness, some of the things, you know, he said, you're clamoring on testing it with your data and saying, will it hold? Will it hold the weight? He, he was very humble. I'm just really so impressed by the way he was able to enter new realms of possibility to ask questions that nobody else had ever thought to ask. You know, we live in a expanding universe, and that, of course, includes the expansion of information and awareness and possibility. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that we as human beings are part of this this expansion of possibility and experience. And he calls us bridges between D space and R space, between the effects right. the effects right. of that and how we're like vessels that can utilize the subtle energy of intention and consciousness to affect physical matter in ways Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. our current understanding of physics and reality generally doesn't understand and doesn't acknowledge. So Tiller's a theorist. He's a theoretical physicist. And his model clearly says, you know, that you have the slower than light world and you have the faster than light world and consciousness and intention. They're beyond the speed of light. We just don't have the tools yet. It's like the germs. We couldn't see them, and we thought people who believed in germs were quacks. And now we know, of course, that's wrong. Once you have the microscope, or Galileo, or Copernicus, who looked through a metal tube at the heavens and makes the data and the numbers and realizes, no, the Earth is not the center. The sun, it makes more sense, you know? And so Tiller, he's a theorist and says, you have to connect these two worlds, and so there must be a moiety, a particle, that we will discover. And so I think as we grow in consciousness, as we understand our instruments, we will create new ways to probe ourselves and also understand and respect that consciousness, we are tied into the experiment. We're not separate. We are the experiment. We are looking at our own selves. And and once we do that, then we grow, you know. And Tiller also said to me one day, Nisha, this SU2 model, our space, it's just the next. Yeah. As we grow, then there's new physics. Then, then we grow into that. Then we grow into that. We're constantly expanding. We will be avatars. We'll be spinning planets out of ourselves. We have to do that. But this is just a small step towards that bigger thing. You know, so, so I was very struck by that, too. You, know? you just said we'll be spinning planets out of ourselves. Yes. Talk more about what you mean by that. So, you know, whenever I say that, and when he talked about it, the one image that immediately came to my mind is the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna is talking to his friend Arjuna. They're both in the middle of life happening. They're not running away, although Arjuna wants to run and hide and say, Krishna, I just want to run from this thing. You know, we're just about to create bloodshed, and I've had enough of this. This is nonsense. And Krishna says, no, no, my friend, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've not understood life. You've not understood action. You can't run away because your mind is like a shadow. It'll follow you. I think Arjuna says, I want to go to the Himalayas because if life is just hunky-dory in meditation, why don't you just go? 
And Krishna says, no, stand here a moment. And along the conversation, Krishna shows him his form, which contains the sun and all the solar system. And Arjuna is awestruck that he never recognized in Krishna. Krishna is his friend, his cousin. And he says, oh, my goodness. And Krishna says, well, that, that's your reality too, my friend. Well, you have some work to do here. You know, so we take action. So until I said the action steps, the, the training wheels, are the information you're creating, the action you're creating now. And once you grow into that immense holiness that you are, the love that you are, then you'll spin things out. You know, you don't judge, you don't have positionalities, you see the greater context, you don't get lost in the content. And I got that when Tiller said that. I said, oh, this is so awesome for a scientist to say it. So Krishna says that. And here's the other thing, which is so immense. You know, one of Dalai Lama's books, the title says, The Universe in a Single Atom. Hmm? Universe in a Single Atom. So the all is contained in the small, and the small is contained in the all. This is just poetic ways of saying it. You mentioned when we spin things out from the realization of who we truly are, how does that affect the world around us? How does that affect physical matter? This is such a beautiful question. So we stop looking at knowledge as dead fact. I'm not interested in more facts. Knowledge has to be converted into understanding, and understanding leads to wisdom. Understanding means not just activity, robotic things, but action. Action is ever-present. Action is new. Action is freshness. Action is alive and vital. So you convert the knowledge, and when you look at a map of consciousness, immediately I remember the night I looked at it, my whole being changed. I was ready for it. And he said, go to the source. Go to the source of all knowledge. Go to the spiritual realm of things. It was a very pregnant way of telling me these things. So action, action brings from understanding. Understanding is active knowledge. It's not dead. We have to get away from dead knowledge, yes? Yes. But when you say action, what is the range of what you are including in that term action? Activity is dead. Activity is habit, habitual patterns. I'm saying when you lift even a cup of coffee to yourself, that action now is alive. It has a vitality about it, not just, let me drink my coffee and let me go and switch on my computer. So your awareness, you're like poised. It's a freshness to living. And for me, it's the quality of living. It's not dead anymore. That's what we're saying. So what we're seeing now with the pandemic is the unpredictability of life. That's beauty, actually. I have been touched by this pandemic very intimately because I've lost family members. Am I sad? Yes. But am I also more vital? Yes. Because it touches me. Life is unpredictable and science is logic and unpredictability defies logic. You have to go to spirit. You are invited now to go there. So knowledge becomes converted into understanding and understanding. Once you once you know understanding, you don't delay. You don't say, I'll Try and meditate tomorrow. Even the word trying, you drop it. You say, I'm now. I'm going to do it. Meditation becomes you. You become 
alive in the very moment of your living. It's not some theory anymore. And that's what Diller also taught me. He was forever alive. Everything he did, the moment he would step into my living room, the way he would sit down, the way he greeted me, the way he said, I choose green tea today, you know? And Bill Tiller, one of the conditions <laughs> of working with you was yes. that you had to meditate every day. Yeah. In fact, he even says, clear your crap out. It's going to take you some time. It's taken me 10 years to at least get to a point where I can begin to even talk a little bit about this. And there's this one line where you say, we have to observe our subconscious activities. Yeah. You're now getting into the patterns that we have. The subconscious rules our world. And once you become intimately familiar with it, then it'll give you even more kernel. So now you're giving meaning to those things with your conscious mind. You're shining a light into those dark areas. So the unconscious is where you're receiving millions and millions and millions bits of information all the time, and most of it is dumped. But once you know and you sit in silence and you let your subconscious bubble up, oh my, it's a gift, really. Carl Jung said it very nicely. Get to know your subconscious, because unless you do, you will call your life fate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we become familiar. We become observers of our pattern, and we just slow down. And slowing down, we realize all of our subconscious patterns playing out again like a movie. Slow down and go, oh, wow. You know, we all have our patterns where we are in our own development. So bring intention into this now, because once we become aware of our subconscious patterns and the way they tend to run our lives by default, you know, when we're not paying attention, so our subconscious habits and patterns can rule our life. Our they do rule lives. our life. So intention, you're bringing knowledge and your understanding. Now you're sharpening and you are creating consciously something in your life. You're sharpening your tool of information creation. You're making it laser-like. Instead of this diffuse, I wish, I'll try. No. Intention is very like a tool. It's a pen and pencil or a scalpel or a paintbrush or something. You create something with full awareness, with full heart. That's intention. And you can make it like a prayer. Bring spirit into that creation process. Thy will be done. You offer it, not only to yourself. That intention is an offering to the divine. How beautiful. You are a bridge also. Why separate the two? It's just we have learned these patterns from society. We have adopted them and made them authority. So intention plays all the time. Even the way I dress today and what I chose to wear, sometimes it's unconscious. Intention is every time in full view. Whether you bring your consciousness, I hope you do, then you'd convert that knowledge into something vital and fresh, and you create something new. You just create something new. So William Tiller created these intention devices, and that's something that I also found fascinating. So I would love for you to talk about 
It's a repository of information. Now, you opened up a million-dollar question because it's a training wheel. And once we grow in consciousness, we won't need a device. By the way, I do have one. (laughs) I meditate with mine because it really helps me, helps me deepen. and, And I'm very grateful in a few years I won't need that. But you see, he's coming from a physicist's perspective. He's a theorist. Remember that. And so he needed to have a way in the laboratory, and this thing holds intention in a stable way. He was very surprised. He knew that human can have an effect on machines. We know that. It's old science. But to hold it for a stable way and then broadcast it to the target was quite amazing. To me, it opened up information medicine. For me, that's the gift here. The device is interesting, no doubt. I have one. Don't get too hung up on it. I'm also very, very interested in the connection between, you know, our day-to-day experience and connecting through the heart and through spirit. Yes. Yes. Integrating We should whole. talk about that, especially now with the pandemic. People are ready. They're slowed down. They're reflecting. I hear reports of people saying, you know, I used to feel anxiety, but that is the least of my worries. Can you believe it? but I am feeling stronger. The priorities are being reordered, and I think people are ready for a new sequel in, I think, humanity's history, and I think we're making a new epoch together. And so I'd be delighted to pick up again. That is Nisha Manik. Nisha is a medical doctor. She's recognized internationally as a leader in the field of integrative medicine. She's also a protege of the physicist Dr. William Tiller, Nisha also has a new book out, Bridging Science and Spirit, The Genius of William Tiller's Physics and the Promise of Information Medicine. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. This morning in my meditation, it came to me because there's a consortium that has gathered around the question of human biofield, human subtle energy, and further research. This consortium has many, many avenues, education, research, public forums and information for public, and so on and so forth. But here's the thing that really caught me. When I opened the email from this person whom I know reasonably well, it said, subtle energy is a $2 billion industry. I didn't like it. And here's what Dr. Tiller said in the Tiller Foundation many years ago, subtle energies are a gift. It's inherent in us. And if I do research, it is to inform humankind that this is an inherent gift and we must convey this for the evolution of humankind. And so Tiller, in his own magnanimous heart, has established many foundations. His hand is in the HeartMath Institute. His hand is in the Institute of Noetic Science, and it has grown. But he has never said, I want money. You know, he had such integrity of inquiry. So when I opened this email and it says it's a $2 billion industry, it actually disturbed me. (laughs) And so with Dr. Tiller, when I met him at dinner in Scottsdale after many, many tenacious emails, and silence. He was actually weighing. 
it wasn't a reflex, yeah, let me get to the Mayo doctor and let me do this and that. No, there was silence and there was consideration. And when we did connect finally, he said, please make note of this. First, I have no money for you to come here. So if you want to do this, you're going to have to find your way. And I said, I got it. It's not about money. Number two, you're going to meditate every day. And if you don't do that, you got to clear your mind. You have to polish your mind. Make it a mirror. He didn't use those words. But I got it much later because there's a lot of crap in my head bouncing around. So today, this email coming to me came to me the biggest lesson with Tiller. Silence, discernment. Discernment means really reaching for the truth in every endeavor. Every motivation becomes clear to you. So you're not bound. So when I do my work, when I fire up my computer at 10 o'clock this morning to see my patient, it is with full-on presence and meeting them where they are. I'm very, very clear about that. It isn't just about a salary. It is about asking authentic questions and asking them, what is your goal for today that you've showed up in that telemedicine consultation? So we honor the person, we probe their consciousness, and then we elevate the conversation just enough. And you know something, Tonio, people respond to that. They're starving for that. So there's a communication that takes a sacred tone. The sacred tone was missing from that email. I can tell you that right now. And then I did something else, Tonio. And whoever your listeners are, I hope they get this from my book because it's already there. The tools are there. Start understanding the levels of consciousness. And if they go into this, you know, dilly-dally, and it won't work. You've got to go to the levels and then ask. This is the other tool in Bridging Science and Spirit. Start to learn the muscle testing. It's really important you understand your acupuncture system. By muscle testing, it's not just your muscles. It's not a local response. It's your acupuncture system, which is already at a higher symmetry state. It's already a higher information and energetic potential. And once you know that, once you get that, that this tool was already available to you, now when you muscle test, it's not a local response. You may think it's local, but it isn't. Higher up, it's being fed by the acupuncture system. And so today I calibrated that email. I actually sat down. I meditated on the question, why does this disturb me so? And then I asked, where is it in the level of truth? And you know, it just is above the level of truth. But it isn't in the intellect even. It's not even the, in the heart. And so I could see, okay, so I just hold silence. And I know that this isn't my place right now. Maybe they will evolve in their motivations. But I cannot make those things happen for them. It's their work. So that's the other lesson from Bridging Science and Spirit. Work on your inner self. You know, whenever... I do a consultation in rheumatology, and I was in rheumatology all those years ago in at the bedside. I could see the stories that I would create as though I have every answer, and I knew I didn't. I can only give a limited perspective from lab testing, 
from the radiology, the x-rays, what the information I got, important as it was. And so I went to Dr. Hawkins at that time and I said, how can I make my patient, you know, ignite in them this deeper inquiry, not just my body and my pain and my labels. And he said, you have to go into the physical story. It's important because it's real. It's very real. It's immediate. So when I'm talking to you on the phone, my tongue and my brain, it's all very real. And if you could just imagine Nisha's arm flailing as I'm talking to you. So it's very real. But Dr. Hawkins said one other thing, and it stayed with me. Make them aware of the spiritual tools. Make them aware of it. So I asked my patients, you want to do everything to get better? Dr. Monica, I want to do everything at my disposal. You know I do. And I said, I hear you. I hear you. So today, we're going to talk about your lab testing, your radiology. We're going to look at the pharmaceuticals, but we're going to look at your nutrition. And then we go there. And then the next visit they come back, we're going to look at your energetic systems. What does that mean? And I asked them, when I say energy... And they feel very encouraged. I know energy is important. And I say, what's your energy level today? If I had to give you a scale, what is it today? And they give me a number. And we describe the energy. Does it mean you can stand up? Does it mean you can hug your grandchild? Does it mean you can clean your house and your floors? So we go to the energy. And then we build a picture greater than that. And I say, what does intention mean to you? Oh, I don't know, Dr. Manik, what does intention mean? And so we open up the conversation bigger and bigger, and then we go into spirit. I do go into spirit. What does prayer mean? What does it mean to you? And how do you pray? Do you have faith? Or are you just chanting robot-like? And so these conversations enrich both of us. It's not a formula. It is not formulaic. But it is really, you know, I'm so energized, Tonio, just (laughs) because I do this every day. And I actually fire up on my computer. And I've done this in my clinic. This is not separate in my clinical work. I fire up my computer and I bring up Psalm 91. I actually print it off and I hand it to my patient. And I highlight certain things contemplation and meditation are important pathways to remove the blocks to your essence. Your essence is love. Your very essence is love. Tiller brought that. Thy will be done. What is thy will be done? What is it? Tiller, in his intention statement, always ends, thy will be done. And you know, to me it was very interesting. I'm Hindu, I'm not Christian. And so I looked it up. And it comes from the most amazing prayer of all the prayers, Master Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. He says, Our Father, which art in heaven? Not even who. People say who, I don't know why. But Hawkins said it's not a who. It's not a form. It's a which. It's a quality. It's the field an absolute unmanifest field, ever-present, omniscient, omnipotent. So we reached there, and Dr. Tiller, in his intention, said something so powerful. 
thy will be done. Notice this. He didn't say the editor's will be done. Didn't say Stanford University's will be done. Didn't say funding agencies will be done. No, he said thy will be done. Oh, Lord, show me the truth in this. Show me the truth in this statement. Show it to me. And he was shown. He was shown in the target experimental results, and that will stand the test of time. That, if a scientist looks at that protocol honestly, with due diligence to their internal work, if they come with it from a linear perspective like A and B and this causes that, won't work. It's not a billiard ball universe. You're inviting spirit into your very protocol, and you watch, and you ask to be shown the truth. And for Tiller, he was shown the truth. The pH of the water did change, and he found another piece of the puzzle that will always stand the test of time. You know, at first he was so flummoxed. His team was so flummoxed. First, he was so blown away that the pH did change. And then he noticed something so remarkable in the physics lab itself. And when you do any changes in the material, and when you change things, we know that the great law in science is thermodynamics. Thermodynamics rules. So he said to himself, okay, thermodynamics is the law, then let me check the space of the very lab where the intention experiments, because you want to know the prevalent conditions. That's thermodynamics. That's temperature. That's volume. That's pressure. All of that. He monitored it. And then he found something very, very weird. And that was this temperature fluctuation, three degrees centigrade every day, not by air conditioning, not by the nighttime dips in temperature. Three degrees centigrade is huge not even air currents, because we know even as I'm talking to you, I can feel the arm as I wave it. I can feel a slight breeze, but this wasn't an air current just blipping up and down. Then what was it? He and his team had noticed this very unusual behavior in the air temperature measurements for years, day after day, hour after hour, and he put fans in the room. Didn't disturb it, not in the least. And that's where Tiller's genius comes in. You remember, he has mathematical knowledge. He has knowledge of symmetry states in nature. And he took the temperature reading and he did mathematical conversion, the Fourier analysis. So it's like a musical score. You know, you have Beethoven scores and you can do mathematicals and you'll have harmonics. You can collapse those wave temperature forms and look at the patterns underneath. It's like music. And he was astonished. The air temperature was not random. It wasn't from the air particles. Mm-mm. They were harmonics, nesting perfectly. Nesting one into each other. The pH, the air temperature, not only in the lab, but even 10 meters outside the doorway because they'd monitored temperature probes all over. And they had amazing data year after year. 
And then when you do Fourier analysis, you see that the lab was singing. He said it was like the whole space was pumping, like a musical score. And if we could hear it, it's like that music would lift us off our feet. He was touching the physical vacuum. All right? So, and that we come into Paul Dirac's amazing work. You know, we have science heroes, and for me, when I met Tiller, I've likened it to meeting Albert Einstein. And there were three scientists that really, in my research with Bridging Science and Spirit, are so incredible. First one is James Clerk Maxwell. In the 1860s, James Clerk Maxwell united electricity and magnetism in a unified electromagnetism equation. So we know that when you have a magnet, if you move it up and down, it actually creates fields, electric fields. And then electricity, if you run it down a wire, it creates magnetism. But what's important to me is that Maxwell looked at something which was thought to be separate, electricity and magnets, and he united them with the Maxwell equations. The important thing here is this. Just imagine in the 1800s, people did science with stuff, stuff you can touch, stuff you can feel, stuff you can see. And Maxwell brought something incredible and jumped us forward in our evolution in science. He introduced the concept of fields. Fields are a source of influence from a body. Like I have a biofield, so Nisha has a form, a body, but surrounding her is a biofield that extends away from her. So away from an electric wire are fields. You cannot see them. They're invisible, but you know they're there. A magnet, you know, when you're moving it, it'll register its effect on the electric meter. So we know it's there. So we know those fields exist. Now, there's something important in the Maxwell equations, and Maxwell himself was a little bit confused by it. And he said, you know, electricity has particles, we call it electrons, and when you run electrons down a wire, you get electricity, it has particles. And he knew that there is symmetry in magnets. Magnets also have particles, magnet monopoles, south and north. But we have never found them in nature. Maxwell predicted them in the 1800s. He says, we have never found this in nature and we can't seem to see it. And you know what? He brushed it aside for a while. He says, I don't know. It's there. The symmetry is broken. Magnet monopoles should exist, but we cannot find them. Theoretical physics has always been ahead. We have electrical particles, electricity, symmetry, predict magnet monopoles. We haven't found them yet. So here is Maxwell who advanced our understanding of nature with the contribution of fields. And even Einstein pays homage to that great physicist and said, more than anyone, Maxwell has done us the greatest service in nature, in physics, whatever anybody else says, because he contributed to the invisible world. And, you know, it is said that when Maxwell died, and he died quite young, it is said that he uttered the words that it wasn't me making these 
beautiful equations. It was something greater than me. And he said it was God, the unseen working with me, through me. It was quite poetic. The second science hero for Nisha is Ludwig Boltzmann. Boltzmann in the late 1800s was a champion of atomic theory. He has given us the formula for entropy. And this is the big thing with nature. If you live nature to itself, it has great symmetries, but it always runs to disorder. Probability dictates that. And Boltzmann recognized that when you have thermodynamics, when you have the steam engine, when you have water vapor, and when you harness the power of water vapor to run this great engines and introduce the industrial revolution of the 1800s, underneath that revolution is the power of entropy. What do I mean by that? We know that water, right now as I look at a glass of water, it looks very serene, but inside that water, those water molecules are bouncing around, frenzied, and you heat up the water, the water molecules have kinetic energy. They bounce even faster, and you reach a critical temperature, and those water molecules escape the water and create steam. And those water molecules, if you contain them in an engine, in an enclosed container, it will create pressure. The water molecule hitting the container wall creates pressure. That power is so enormous that it will drive an engine and carry great weight and volume. That entropy. And at that time in the late 1800s, the science of thermodynamics was pretty much set. We could understand by calculations pressure, volume, and predict how much volume a steam engine can carry. And it was thought to be closed. We know how thermodynamics works. Why bother with anything else? And Boltzmann said no. Underneath all of this is these entities, atoms. We cannot see them, but they are there. His science predicted the atom's presence and the science of entropy. And Boltzmann was ridiculed. In Vienna, you know, he's talking about these unseen things, atoms, and the physicists say, ridiculous, these are ghost-like entities, they do not exist, you're crazy. And in fact, he took his life. He was so depressed at being shunned by the physics community of his day that he committed suicide. And just a few years later, the atomic theory was triumphant. So Boltzmann is a second big hero because, again, he's dipping into the invisible universe. The third science hero in my book, Paul Dirac. Paul Dirac was an engineer by training in Bristol. And an engineering mindset always connects concepts. It's just how they're trained. And Tiller's an engineering mindset, too. In the early 1900s came Einstein's relativity. And, you know, at that time, the newspapers declared Newton's physics is all wrong. Well, of course it's not. Media always gets it wrong. Newton's physics holds for big bodies. What Einstein introduced was the concept of space curvature and gravity it bends when you have great bodies and light bends in these fields. 
and you can actually test it. And there was a great eclipse, and you could see that the light was bending exactly as Einstein predicted. So relativity in great cosmos is correct. When you move at the speed of light, the rules of physics are changed. That's what Einstein is really saying. But Newton is correct. Einstein is correct. They're both right in their relative world. What Dirac says is that, hmm, let's look at the world of the very small, the quantum world, the electron, and you have the great cosmos. They're both correct. How do you unify the two? That's where Paul Dirac comes in. He unified the quantum relativity world and the Newton world. At that time, the physicists were using equations to predict the behavior of electrons using Newtonian equations. It was approximate, and you could pretty much get to the electron behavior, but it's not perfect. And that's where Dirac did this beautiful Dirac equation to predict the electron's behavior and unified relativity and Newtonian equations in the Dirac equations. But here's the beautiful thing. The Dirac equation predicts a couple of things. First of all, he said, you have to have the empty space. Again, Dirac does something magnificent. He goes into the invisible realm. And then he does something else. He says, you have enough energy from cosmic radiation. It interacts with this empty space. It's the ground state. It's full of potential material. And you have enough energy, out pops an electron. Wow. So you see, what Dirac did was, first of all, describe something that had never been done before. He called it empty space. Physicists now call it the physical vacuum. And then this was the other thing. You have to have something arbitrary. He, he used terms that had never existed before. You have to start somewhere. So use empty space. Empty space, enough energy, and an electron material comes out of it material stuff comes out of it, which is really incredible. But here's the thing that Dirac also predicted, the Dirac equation. It also predicts the magnetic monopole. And at that time, he, like Maxwell, says, you know, we have never found this, but it must exist somewhere in nature because nature must have use of it, right? So Dirac is puzzled. But there's another thing he was very puzzled about. Empty space, up pops an electron, which is a negative particle. And because nature has symmetries, it must have a negative of a negative, so it must leave behind a positive particle somewhere in that empty space. But we haven't found that either. What's going on? So he was a little disturbed, but boy, his equations were more than perfect. I say more than perfect. This is Nisha speaking, okay? So if there's a physicist listener, he might cringe, but I'm going to roll with it. What Dirac did was predict antimatter. It had never been observed before. Symmetries of nature are very important to predict things, okay? Things, that is stuff. So unmanifest physical vacuum with enough energy can have electron material, that is electric things, and antimatter. But here's the beautiful thing. 
When Paul Dirac published the Dirac equation and antimatter was predicted, it not only described electron behavior, it also predicted antimatter or positron. He called it anti-electron. Now, four years later, very short time from the publication of the Dirac equation came the most magnificent discovery in the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, one of the most magnificent physics institutions of our time. At that time, it was Carl Anderson. He's looking at a glass chamber, investigating particles, and wouldn't you know it, he has a cosmic radiation, and there he found electrons shooting off and found a tracing opposite to the electron. And he said, hmm, he didn't know about Dirac's work, but Carl Anderson is observing in the glass chamber a tracing of a particle with the same mass, but its charge is positive. He called it at that time a negative electron. He didn't know about Dirac's work, but he had discovered the positron. And he won the Nobel Prize in physics for the discovery of the positron. And now it's accepted. But here's the takeaway. Dirac was an engineer and united through his equation, big concepts in cosmology of Einstein, relativity, physics, and the quantum physics in the Dirac equations. By doing so, he predicted, first of all, he described a physical vacuum and he predicted antimatter which wasn't existing. It was there, but we hadn't found it. And we didn't have the tools. But here we are, four years later, Carl Anderson in Pasadena found the positron and confirmed Dirac's predictions. Now we have antimatter for all particles, okay? But here's the other thing that Dirac did. He described the invisible universe again, okay? This is the invisible. You can't see these things. That's very, very hard in science to do. And then Dirac did the other thing. He predicted the magnet monopole, right? We haven't found it yet. And people are still trying. They know it's somewhere, and they've spent billions of dollars in most magnificent institutes around the world, MIT, Caltech, Scandinavian countries. In my research, I've been looking into it, and they come close. But it's not a stable situation. You can create mag magnet monopoles in the lab, but it's unstable. It's a flicker, but they see it and they go, whoa, we're close, we're close. What are the conditions for a magnet monopole to be present in nature? It's a big question, because if we find it in nature, it's going to jump us forward in our science evolution and, you know, I predict, in our human evolution. If we find the conditions, and I think Tiller, more than anyone, is coming closer than anyone. When you do science endeavors, we look at things, we sense things, we measure things, we look for reproducibility, we look for things we can hear, see, touch, all of that. And what I am talking about are scientists, Maxwell, Boltzmann, Paul Dirac, and now Bill Tiller, who have gone into the invisible world, into the invisible nature. And that's really courageous because they are theorists and engineers who are linking big concepts and they're jumping forward. And, you know, in their day, were ridiculed. One of them took his life. And then we have Paul Dirac, 
who was embarrassed with the prediction of antimatter. And he says, I have no idea what this means, but I know my equations are achingly beautiful and divine works through beauty. I mean, when I looked into his life history, he actually writes about these things. And I encourage your listeners to go there because by learning to go there courageously in your own life with an unknown and to look at things with an open and honest inquiry, you'll be led there. But here's what Tiller did. He is a material science expert, has the mathematical background, knows four-year mathematics and analysis, which is a mathematics that looks at waveforms and looks at the underlying harmonics. So when he's looking at the waveforms in his lab where he's doing the target experiments, it looks weird, but he knew, don't brush this data aside. It is there. He called it phantom waves, actually, but that's where the physicist's gold was hiding. It was in plain sight, and if you have the inner work and you have the instinct, you go there, and you look at it, and you say, hmm, what does this mean? What's the clue here? How does this inform us? What information is in plain sight? How are we going to look at this data? Okay? And this is what Tiller was doing. If I can back up a bit, let's look at him. He's in front of a whiteboard. Invisible consciousness. Invisible intention. You can't look at it. It has no color. It has no taste. It has no sound. How are you going to investigate consciousness? Let's get real about this question. It's not about the brain. And I've given many examples in Bridging Science and Spirit. One of them is the relics of the Buddha, which are very conscious objects. But Tiller is an engineer, and he said, hmm, consciousness, invisible, intention, invisible. Intention is a tool by which consciousness works. Consciousness does things. It creates information by intention. Intention is information. It really is. As I create this conversation with you, Tonio, I'm creating information that is passed through electromagnetic means so that you're decoding at the other end without loss of signal. Genius of modern telecommunication. But my consciousness is still an intangible thing. It isn't in my brain. My brain is a beautiful wiring instrument, organ, but it's very slow. It's milliseconds, but consciousness, ever-present, everywhere, a field effect is faster than the speed of light. We don't have tools beyond just electromagnetism yet, and we certainly don't have the tools that go beyond space and beyond time and beyond a speed of light. But those are our metrics. Those are our limitations. Those are our constraints. Those are our boundary conditions. You have to recognize those things in science. So Tiller is in front of his whiteboard saying consciousness, intention, and there are these gifts that people do like distance healing. How does this exist? And it's real. It's very real. And you know, Tiller is a meditator. And he says, when I meditate, I know I feel something inside of me. It's very real. It's not part of your imaginary things. 
And I've since, you know, learned Tai Chi and Qigong. I, too, have gone down those pathways with master healers and said, yep, it's there. I know these energy channels exist, but in my anatomy class, they weren't there. I dissected veins and arteries and muscle tissue and, you know, connective tissue, but I didn't see any energy meridians, but I know they're there. I can feel them. So Tiller, in front of his whiteboard, is saying, well, how do we test consciousness and intention? How do we connect these concepts? He's an engineer, and that's where he made the big leap, and I think he connected. That's his genius. He said, the lawful science is thermodynamics. The lawful science is entropy. Something about intention organizes energy. My intention, why I step on the mat to do Qigong, is not willy-nilly. I organize, and then I can direct my energy to go down to my toe or my hand or my shoulder or my back if it's hurting, or my head to get the headache relief. I can do those things. It's not mysterious to me anymore. At that time, 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, come on, let's take a Tylenol. I don't do that anymore. I ask myself, where is my imbalance in my energy system? Tiller's in front of his whiteboard and said, okay, intention, information organizes energy. So the more primal force is intention. It's not energy. Intention and information are intimately connected with energy, and they actually organize the energy. This concept of information confused me endlessly. I thought, it's digital, and Tiller says, no, it's not. Everything is information. So let me give you an example about this connection with information and energy, because everybody says everything is energy. Well, not really. The more fundamental unit in the world, in our nature, is information. And the law that operates with information is thermodynamics. So one day I go to his office and, oh, my God, I in a more disorganized space. <laughs> okay, for somebody who knows space, Tiller's office had books and crystals and desk overflowing. But he liked it like that. You know, I understand where everything is, and this is how I organize myself. Now, if I were to come into that office, Nisha, with her energy, could organize Tiller's office and everything, right? I would clean it up with my energy, but Tiller says that would be completely incorrect. Why? Because I need to have information to direct my energy to organize his stuff in the right way. Information is necessary all the time to organize energy. And that's what healers do. When you go to an acupuncture visit or you go for Reiki or even your massage therapist, they use intention. That intention is information. They're sensing imbalances in the body and trying to correct it. That's the beauty of healing, of therapeutic touch. That has a place, but I always encourage my patients do not be a passive consumer of this. Learn this for yourself. It's not that hard to do. And at the bedside, we do the first thing is just breathe. I switch off the light in my office. I put my hand on their pulse, and I say, let's close our eyes for two or three minutes. And they love it. In fact, let's do it right now. We just close our eyes. We just deep breathe for a few moments. We drop the awareness into our heart center 
And if that is a term that's not familiar to you, it's okay. Drop your awareness to the center of your chest. You feel your heart beating. Just rest your awareness there for a few moments and rest. This is a gift for you to just linger there for a few moments. And I'm going to teach you a breathing technique that I teach my patients because it's a foundation for reflection, meditation, or a contemplative practice, whatever, just rest in silence. So I'm going to lead you through it. Exhale out fully. Breathe in for a count of four. One, two, three, four. Now hold for a count of seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and out. Exhale for a count of eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Breathe in for a count of four. Hold for a count of seven. Out for a count of eight. Slow exhale. Empty and then count in for a count of four again. Then you hold for a count of seven and then exhale for a count of eight. So it's four, seven, eight. Inhale for a count of four. Hold for a count of seven and out for a count of eight. If you do that for a few minutes, you'll notice something. And I've seen this over and over and over again. The pulse rate settles right down. In fact, your parasympathetic nervous system comes into play. Your acupuncture system underneath is recalibrated. You're stronger, you're relaxed, and you're more alert. It's really interesting that you are hyper-aware, and yet in a deep set of relaxation. It's a very useful state to be in. Very wonderful. And it's at your disposal any time. So with that, Tonya, we'll close out for today, and then we'll reconvene again. That was Nisha Manik. She's a medical doctor and protege of the physicist Dr. William Tiller. Her new book is Bridging Science and Spirit, The Genius of William Tiller's Physics and the Promise of Information Medicine. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other, and stay safe. Stay safe.